invite you to take your copy of God's Word and find the Gospel of John, chapter 4, John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 19 through 24, it's where we will begin tonight as we think about worship matters. A few years ago, I went to Israel. I commend to you a pilgrimage to Israel, the land of the Bible. While there, I went on one occasion, and then the following day, on a second occasion, to the Western Wall, or the what's known as the Wailing Wall, there at the Temple Mount. That wall goes back all the way to the time King Solomon. And there I had the experience of prayer at the Wailing Wall. I gladly put on the Jewish skull cap and prayed with Orthodox Jewish men at the Wailing Wall. There's a sign there as you come in to the area in English and Hebrew and Aramaic. It says, the Spirit of God never leaves this place. And I confess to you that I did have an unusual sense of the presence of the Spirit of God as I prayed there at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I want us to think tonight about worship and remind you that worship matters. There's nothing that you and I engage in more important than the worship of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're engaged in multiple ministries. We're engaged in mercy ministries. At the end of the service tonight, you'll be asked to make a contribution uh, to our benevolent ministry. Um, there'll be receptacles at the door for you to make that contribution. We feed many people. I uh, uh, came across my desk just this last week. I assume it was from our congregational care pastor, Tom McClendon, the last four years, we've given $345,000 for Mercy Ministries here just locally. Uh, there's the ministry of the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. There's the ministry of evangelism, proclaiming the good news and calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. But I want to submit tonight, which you've heard me say many times across the years that I've been your pastor, worship is ultimate. And everything else is penultimate because we have been made by God for God for his glory. Now having said that, worship is not limited to what takes place in this room on the Lord's day morning or evening. We need to get this right. We have no room for error here. And the Bible is our only infallible guide to worship. And we find in John's Gospel, chapter 4, an encounter that the Lord Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. Uh, we won't take the time tonight to look at the entire chapter, which gives us the background of this encounter, but just a quick summary. 
Jesus and the 12 were making their way north to Galilee. Jesus was a Galilean. He was going to his home area. And the scripture says they must needs go through Samaria, which was unusual because uh, Jews and Samaritans didn't have anything to do with one another. And if a good Jew was going to go from Jerusalem to Galilee in the north, he would go around Samaria, a day or two or three extra travel by foot. But on this occasion, Jesus took the 12 through Samaria. And there they came to a well outside the Samaritan village of Sychar. And Jesus sent the 12 into the village to find some food. And Jesus sat down by the well there in the middle of the day. And a Samaritan woman came out and Jesus engaged her in conversation, which in itself was remarkable because, first of all, Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another. And secondly, certainly a man didn't have any dealings uh, with a woman in that kind of setting. And so this woman was surprised, and Jesus, uh, he, he spoke to her about the living water. And uh, so they, they began to engage in a conversation about worship. So let's, let's pick up the narrative in verse 19, and we'll read through verse 24. Sarah, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now just underline in your mind that phrase, worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him, here it is the second time, in spirit and in truth. So Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman and they have a conversation about what is the proper place to worship God. And uh, she said, Mount Gerizim. Uh, but she said, but you Jews, she obviously knew Jesus was Jewish. You Jews believe that worship takes place in Jerusalem, at the temple. And notice Jesus' response. Look again at verse 21 and following. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem. And then here Jesus was very politically incorrect, but very theologically correct when he said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Now, you know, the Samaritans, they were part Jewish and part Gentile, and they had part of the Old Testament, rejected part of the Old Testament. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. Thank God. No place for anti-Semitism ever. Our Savior was born of a Jewish maiden. He was reared in a Jewish home. On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue in 
Nazareth to worship. And so salvation is from the Jews. God raised up Abraham and all the descendants of Abraham through whom the Messiah would come. We Gentile Christians owe a huge debt to the Jewish people. And we pray for their salvation. They are not saved because they are Jewish. If a person is saved, he is saved because he or she, whether you are Jewish or Gentile, have repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is quite clear on that. Now look again in verse 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then verse 24, God is spirit. Now we know that God the Son took on human flesh. He is forevermore the God-man, but God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the worship that honors the Lord is worship that's done in spirit and in truth. Now what does it mean to worship in Spirit and truth. It, to worship in truth means you worship in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any worship apart from recognizing Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior from sin is not, never has been, and never will be true worship. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, God is spirit, and to worship in spirit is to worship depending upon the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, when we, when we begin our worship service, at least when I'm up here uh, uh, praying, I will say, welcome Holy Spirit in this place. It's not that we're ever apart from the Spirit of God if we're in Christ, because the Spirit of God indwells us, but we are welcoming the manifest presence of the Spirit of God into our assembly of worship. So true worship is worship in spirit and in truth. Samaritan said it takes place in Mount Gerizim. Jews said Jerusalem. Jesus said neither. True worship is not a geographical place. True worship is in Christ Jesus. Now, the prophet Muhammad, who is revered by devotees of Islam, said, and I quote, one prayer in Jerusalem outweighs a thousand elsewhere. Jerusalem's not their most holy city, it's their third most holy city. Let me say it to you again. He said, one prayer in Jerusalem outweighs a thousand elsewhere. No, no, no. Not at all. If it was necessary for us to go to Jerusalem, necessary for us to go to the Western Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to have our prayers heard, all of us here in good old Auburn, Alabama would be in a big mess, wouldn't we? And both days I prayed at the Wailing Wall, I had a sense of the manifest presence of God. But I tell you, I have sensed the presence of God multitude of times in this very room. And I've encountered the, the, the presence of the living God time and time again in my prayer room off my study. Worship really matters, but not all worship honors God. 
So I want to talk to you tonight about worship. First of all, I want you to see with me in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, that there is false worship. And false worship is focused on the wrong object, and it has the wrong heart. And when Paul wrote his inspired letter to the church in Rome, he began in chapter 1, laying forth, setting forth, I should say, uh, the wrath of God against all humanity because they were worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And we'll just pick up in verse uh, 21, Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, that's the whole world. Everybody knows there's a God, Paul says. They, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. First, your thinking is wrong, and then your heart follows your thinking. If you think falsely, you will feel and believe falsely. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You say, pastor, does that take place? Well, we may not see that here, but you can go places in Asia where you can see that. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is false worship. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So this is false worship. And false worship ends up with all manner of depraved lifestyle. In this particular case, Paul is talking about the attraction, uh, sexual attraction of a man for another man or for a woman for another woman. And it is just overwhelming our country today. And we must stand for the truth. Okay. False worship is the wrong object and the wrong heart. It is man-centered it is not God-centered. It is based on works and deeds and morality and not based on grace. That's the great divide in the world of faith. Over here's the Christian life, here's the Christian faith. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, and every other religious system, be it Islam, Jainism, Hinduism, Confucianism, is, uh, Buddhism, Whatever, it's all works-based. And so we find here that there is false worship, wrong object, wrong heart. Second, I want you to think with me about misguided worship, wrong object, but right heart. And here I want us to go to Romans chapter 10 as we think about misguided worship. Wrong object, but right heart. And of course here in Romans chapter 10, Paul is talking about his fellow Israelites 
the sons and daughters of Abraham who were practicing false uh, false worship, excuse me, misguided worship. Not false worship, misguided worship. Their heart was right, but their object was wrong. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but his, he had a, a passion. He had a broken heart for the salvation of his fellow Jews. Verse 2, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Okay. They, are, they have the zeal for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It was, it was not based on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the, the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies of the Hebrew Bible. Verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to Christ, excuse me, God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This, this passage reminds me of those Orthodox Jewish men that were gathered there at the Wailing Wall when I prayed there. Uh, they had their phylacteries. They, they were dressed in the traditional black garb of an Orthodox Jewish man, and they were bowing and praying and bowing and praying and bowing and praying. I mean, they were zealous for, they were zealous in their worship. They had a heart, but it was in the wrong object. No recognition of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. None. It was not in Christ. It was not in spirit and in truth. I admire their zeal. Their zeal puts many of us to shame. But it was misguided. Wrong object, right heart. So we've seen there's false worship, wrong object, wrong heart, misguided worship, wrong object, right heart. Third, I want you to see with me, there's lukewarm worship, right object, but wrong heart. Look in Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And what an indictment this one verse is to the people of God. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. You ever come into this room on the Lord's day? You were here in body, but your mind was a thousand miles away. Could be any number of places. I confess I've been guilty even when I'm preaching that Sunday. I want to suggest tonight that it's possible to have the right object, the Lord Jesus Christ but have a wrong heart. To be lukewarm in our worship. Have you ever said, 
Sunday worship is boring. Ever said that? I'm just bored. He, I don't want to hear him preach. He just bores me to tears. Well, if he's talking about something besides God, that's one thing. But if he's talking about God, the problem is not with the preacher talking about God. The problem is you. True worship of the, of the triune God is not boring. You encounter the triune God, you won't be bored. You may be terrified, but you won't be bored. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, declared the, the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. When you and I see the Lord in worship, whether it is personal, private worship, or the worship of the people of God, I declare to you it is not boring. It is exhilarating. It is life transforming and it is infinitely satisfying. It's a puzzle to me that people can come into this room and sing. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth or to sing holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty or to sing all hell the power of Jesus name while thinking about what they're going to do on Sunday afternoon. The Lord Jesus spoke to this. Look in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. As you know, Revelation chapter, chapters 2 and 3 are the, the account of the seven letters that <clears throat> the resurrected Jesus gave to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And to the church in Laodicea, we read <clears throat> in uh, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other because you are lukewarm. You are neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's what Jesus thinks about lukewarm worship. You got the right object. If you're in a Christian worship service on the Lord's Day, you're in the right place, but you got a wrong heart. So, false worship, misguided worship, lukewarm worship. And then fourth, there's true worship. Let's go back to John chapter 4. True worship is right object and right heart. Right object and right heart. Let's look at it again. See what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You Jews claimed that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews at a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers, we're talking about true worship, right object and right heart. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God our Father seeks for his redeemed sons and daughters to worship him in spirit and truth because God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. The right object, 
our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The right heart, a single-minded passion and devotion for God. Now, spirit and truth are the parameters of our worship. We're not at liberty just to come in here and do whatever we want to. I want to confess to you, we've done some shenanigans in here in my 42 years that I let, let happen. Not in recent years. So, let's talk a little bit about what worship is when we gather. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper tonight. That is worship. We're, we have sung the praises of God. That's worship. And I want to say once again, I, I'm a broken record on this. I think we make a mistake when we, when we use the word worship to describe the singing of praise to God because worship is far broader than the singing of praise to God and nobody sings better than our Lakeview people. I tell you that. But if we limit worship just to the singing of praise, what about tithes and offerings? What about the proclamation of the gospel, the teaching of God's word, the giving of testimonies, baptism, and other things that take place in this room. It all starts with the Word of God. And I have faithfully preached this Word to you since 1979, and Pastor Brown will do so until God calls him home or Jesus comes back. You don't have to be anxious about the new pastor. But there are, there are pastors that don't want to preach the whole counsel of God. They just, you know, they pick the sweet parts and leave out the sour parts. And there's some of both in the Bible. On vacation, I, I always got, try to go to church on a Sunday when I'm on vacation. And I've heard some good preaching and I've heard some stuff that just, I'm just going to not comment. I have been known to walk out. The man who stands in the pulpit on the Lord's Day in the service of corporate worship doesn't just need to give you, you know, sweet, syrupy songs. I tell you, when I was pastor at Carolina Baptist Church one Sunday, I didn't have a sermon. And I got a sermon out of a book. It was four stories. And one of them was about a little dog that died with leukemia. And a woman coming to me and said, Brother, that's the greatest sermon I've ever heard you preach. That's more an indictment on her than it was on me. That's what some people want. They want, they want sweetness. You know, just don't tell us, uh, give us uh, salvation without repentance. Give us heaven without hell. Give us grace, you know, without, without judgment. When we preach systematically, verse by verse, through books of the Bible, we'll have to cover it all. That's what I've done. That's what Pastor Brian's going to do. I heard about a pastor who, on the, on the Lord's Day, he would have a children's sermon, and the, little, the boys and girls would come down, and he'd sit on the steps, they'd gather around, and he'd tell a little children's sermon. And one Sunday, he said, Now, boys and girls, what is, what has, uh, what's brown and furry 
has a big bushy tail, beady eyes, and climbs around in trees. The little boy said, God. His dad was not happy. He came down, snapped that boy up by the nap of the neck, took him to the lobby and said, son, why don't you tell the preacher God? He said, oh, dad, I knew he was talking about a squirrel, but I figured he's in the pulpit. He ought to be talking about God. We preach the word of God, we will preach about the triune God. Including homosexuality, abortion, sacrificial giving to take the gospel to the nations, and holiness of life. We preach it all. And we'll get it all in one, son, one sermon, but just stretch it out over a few decades. You'll get it all covered. And when we pray here, we, we pray in Jesus' name. We don't pray generic prayers. We pray in the name of the Son of God. And when we give an offering here, it's, it's for, the, for the advance of the kingdom of God. It's for the spread of the gospel. We've never taken an offering up for the Red Cross. Now, I'm not opposed to the Red Cross. And when there's a disaster, if you want to go to the Red Cross, have at it. Or the United Way. But it is not the purpose of corporate worship to take up an offering for anything other than the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in some form or fashion. And not all songs that are sung are appropriate for corporate worship. And for a long time, our criteria for what we sing is threefold. It's not anything new. Number one, does the song glorify God? If it doesn't glorify God, throw it out. Number two, is it faithful to the scriptures and theologically sound? And then number three, is it singable? I'm not talking about for the choir, I'm talking about for the person. Is it a singable song? Now, it matters not to me or it matters not to, to Brother Adam uh, whether the song was written 200 years ago or two weeks ago. That's not the point. The point is, does it glorify God? Is it faithful to the scripture and theologically sound? And, does, and can the congregation sing it? Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in worship. Now, some of you are thinking, what's controversial about what you said tonight? Aren't you? Listen, if you're a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian, I haven't said anything tonight that's controversial. So where does the controversy come in? When I first preached this sermon in June of 2011, I preached it in the vortex of the controversy that had been raging in my soul for several years. Back in the mid-1980s, John West, our missions pastor, suggested to me, why don't we have a God and Country Day on the Sunday nearest to Independence Day, July 4th? And it took me about that long to agree, just a split second. And here's why I agreed to it. I knew it would enhance attendance. I knew it would. I'd watch other churches do it, and you know it did. Did you know at one year on God and Country Day, 
we had 1,400 people here for God and country, more than twice as many as we had last Sunday for God and Country Day. Our people loved it. I have had so many Lakeview members say to me after God and Country, oh, pastor, this is the greatest worship Sunday of the year for us. I'm not making this up. I heard it again and again and again. And if you love the United States of America, and your pastor does, and you don't need to doubt it. If you love the United States of America, there's a lot about it that you would like. The question was, was it appropriate for a service of Christian worship? And one of the things that we would do in latter years is we would ask all the folks who had served in the military. Uh, to stand when, when the choir would sing the, the song for their branch of service. And of course, everybody else is standing, and so you know you couldn't see who was standing. So then we started asking when we sing this branch of service song, and then this one, and this one, and this one, you just come and stand at the front. And the whole front would be filled with, I don't know, 100 or so men and women, some in uniform, some not, some active duty, some retired. And we would applaud and applaud and applaud and applaud and we would cheer for them. And I'm on the front row and I'm thinking, we've never applauded for Jesus like this. We've never stood and clapped for Jesus for two or three minutes. We've never applauded for our missionaries who are in hard places in the world. And for several years I stood there thinking, oh, I'm not... God, this, is, this, this, is, this does not honor you. And so in March of 2010, I said to the pastors and deacons, I said, since last July, God and Country Day, my, my heart has been stirred. And I've been praying, please, Jesus, come back before next God and Country Day so I don't have to deal with this. But I have to deal with this, so I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. And so we, we changed how we do God and Country Day. We still have it. We had it last Sunday. It's very low-key compared to what it was 10 years ago. Everything that happened here was wonderful. It, it, just, it was the wrong place. It, it should have been in a, a stadium or an arena somewhere, but not in the house of the Lord. Not appropriate. Uh, when I do a wedding, sometimes I wear a tuxedo if I can get in it still. <laughs> it's appropriate for a pastor who's officiating at a wedding to wear a tuxedo. It would not be appropriate for me to wear a tuxedo when I go to the beach. Nor would it be appropriate for me to officiate at a wedding in a swimsuit and flip-flops. It's not that what we were doing was wrong. It just it was not appropriate to do it in this place. Uh, because we're here to worship the Lord God Almighty. Not our forefathers, our founding fathers. I have great appreciation for all of them. I, I'm, I'm a... I'm a a student of history, I was a history major. (sighs) 
but not in the house of the Lord. I mean, think about it like this. Let's, let's say you're at a wedding. And uh, occasionally through the years, I've, I've officiated a wedding where either the bride or the groom is a gifted soloist. And it doesn't happen often, but it has happened where uh, the couple will say, can I sing a, a love song to my bride or groom as a part of the ceremony? Well, that's good. You got a good singing voice. If you don't, it's not. <laughs> but can you imagine, here we are, here, here, here's the, the officiating minister, here's the bride, here's the groom, and the, and the bride has a beautiful singing voice, and she wants to sing a love song but instead of turning and facing and singing it to her groom, she turns and sings the love song to her, to one of the, one of the groomsmen. That's what God and country had become at Lakeview Baptist Church. Just cast Jesus out for one Sunday out of the year. He said, well, just one Sunday? You got 51 more Sundays to worship God? Well... What would you think of a husband saying, well, I'm just going to be unfaithful to my wife one Saturday night out of the year? Unacceptable. I, I had more people upset with me in June of 2011 than any time in my entire life. I think most of the church is upset with me. But I appreciate you following my leadership on this one. And I'm not right because I'm right. I'm right because Jesus is deserving of our worship. And we don't want to have any deluded worship, any misguided worship, any wrong worship in the house of the Lord. We want our focus to be entirely, exclusively, now and forever on our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to the degree that I was complicit in that for about 20 years, I ask your pardon. To the degree that you trusted me to make the change, I express my deepest gratitude. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done because I knew it was going to be exceedingly unpopular. But I decided a long time ago, I just need to please an audience of one. And his name is Jesus. Worship matters. It really does matter. And Jesus has established the parameters. And they're found in John's gospel chapter 4. In spirit and in truth. And if we're going to honor him, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, God, our Father, I thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, I count it a great privilege to be pastor of this church. to shepherd these people who have trusted me and followed me.
And God, I pray they'll follow Pastor Brian. We do love you. We want what takes place in this room to glorify you. We don't want it to be diluted in any way, God. We want to honor you and glorify your great name. In the name of Jesus, amen.